Uh, Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. We'll be looking at a a large passage. We're going to be looking at verses 23 through 46. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, you can you can pick up the Bible in the pew back in front of you, uh, and it will be on page 826, and go on to page 827, and you can follow along. And we'll read that passage in just a minute. But we're continuing our study through Matthew's Gospel, and we are nearing the end. And what, what's played a, a major part as, as we've looked through this gospel is Jesus reached a point in this gospel, and, and this, is, this, is, this happens in Mark and it happens in Luke, where Jesus says, okay, we're going to Jerusalem. And he sets his face towards Jerusalem, and there's, there's these passion predictions where he says, this is what we're doing, and he tells his disciples, we're, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed. And he's made that plain to his disciples. We saw that in Matthew 16, uh, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Not only that, that he would suffer, but Jesus had also made clear by, by whose hands he would suffer. He'd suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And then Matthew, just earlier in chapter 20, verse 18, he says, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked mocked and flogged and crucified. And so we know as we've been, been following this gospel, we know what's going to happen. We know what he's, where, where he's going and we know what's gonna happen to him. And so last week we saw Jesus enter the temple and so, so now he's, he's now, we know the antagonists, the chief priest and the, the, the religious leaders. And so now he's on their home turf. He's in the temple. So, so he's entered the place where they have authority. He, he's in the place where they practice their deceitful tactics. He stepped into the temple courts where they feel safe, which is why last week he, he overturned the temple, the tables in the temple and, and pushed out the money changers. And it sets the stage. Last week was the the beginning of this section in Matthew's gospel. We're going to see controversy after controversy after controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders. And so this is going to run all the way through chapter 21, 22, 23. And at the end of chapter 23, it's going to culminate this tension between Jesus and the Pharisees with these seven woes that he pronounces. And then he laments over Jerusalem. And so this, this tension, this animosity between Jesus and the religious leaders is going to, it's going to begin its climax here. And so this morning, we're going to see Jesus continue to be rejected by his opponents. His, these opponents, these religious leaders are going to perpetually refuse to listen to him. And their obstinance is going to take center stage in our passage this morning. So let's, let's look at this passage together. I'll read it and you can follow along. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 23, and I'm going to read through the end of chapter 21. So follow along as I read. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching, and they said, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 25, the baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? 
And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, then Jesus will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus continues, verse 28, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first, and he said, son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind, and he went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And the other son answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Verse 33, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it, and he built a tower and he leased it to tenants. Then he went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. When therefore the owner of this vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Jesus asked. And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Let's pray. Let's pray before we look at this passage. Father, as we come to your word, we confess that we need your help uh, to, to give us understanding, to open our eyes, to behold the wonders of your word. We pray that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies, unite our hearts to fear your name. And as we read specifically this passage, we confess that in many ways we are like the opponents that we find here. In many ways, we confess that we don't want to be like the religious leaders here. And so we ask that you would help us to, to flee from sin and to listen to Christ and obey him as his people. We labor in vain if you don't help us, and so I pray you'd help us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, there's there's three sections. I know this is a long passage, but we'll work through these three sections. So here's the outline if you're taking notes. 
uh, the, the, the title of the sermon is the rejection of the king's opponents because the theme throughout is, is the rejection of these opponents. So, so first point we'll look at, verses 23 through 27, we'll see the authority of the king rejected. And then second section, verses 28 through 32, we'll see the will of the father rejected. And then finally, the last section, the longest section, we'll see the beloved son rejected. And so the theme throughout is their perpetual rejection of Jesus in all three of these ways. And so let's start there, verses 23 through 27, the authority of the king rejected. So look there at verse 23. So we find Jesus, he enters the temple and the chief priests and the elders of the people, they come up to him while he was teaching. And they interrupt his teaching. They, they, they want to know, by what authority are you doing these things? And, and, and who gave you that authority? And so, so here we're, we're in the middle of Passion Week. Matthew doesn't record it, but, but they, had, they had gone back to Bethany after the, the incident in the temple. This is the next day. They come back, and, and the teachers, they, they see Jesus again in the temple. They're afraid of him. They, they can't prevent him. They can't stand at the, at the temple gates and say, no, you can't come in because he has a following. And so he's back in the temple the very next day, and he's teaching, and they come up and approach him, and they, they want to question him about the issue of authority. They want to know, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave it to you? Now, it doesn't specify, but, but when they say these things, they're, they're certainly referring to all that has happened in the temple the previous day, the, the turning over tables and the healing of the blind and the lame. Right? He, Jesus had acted clearly as one with authority. You don't just walk into the temple and start overturning things and, and driving people out unless you're acting upon authority. And so religious leaders, they recognize that, but they want to know what authority do you have? I mean, the, this, is their, this is their home field. This is the temple in Jerusalem. And so these religious leaders had authority. And, and they knew they had not given it to Jesus. And so they wanted to know how he thought he could get away with doing the things that he had been doing. From their perspective, nobody could assume the authority that Jesus has assumed. There had to be some superior person or institution that had given authority that Jesus was acting with. And as we know, these religious leaders, they're not really concerned with the answer, are they? They don't really care by what authority. Their, their primary concern is arresting Jesus. And so they, they, they formulate this question to trap him. You see, if Jesus said any human authority had, had been given to him, they would say, well, well, that authority is subject to us. This is the temple. We are the God-given authority in this place. And, and so you can't do that. Right? That's, that's, the, that's the response if he answers that it is man who gave him authority. And, and if he says that God had given him authority, they'd say, well, we know him. And, and he didn't give that authority to you. You're blaspheming. We're going to arrest you. Right? So, so it's a trap. There, there's no right answer in their minds. They're not interested in the truth. They don't care that Jesus had, in fact, been sent by God. Instead, all they're concerned with is how to eliminate him and shut him down. And so I assume there's a, there's a tone of arrogance in their question. They think they've figured out a way to trap Jesus. But look at verse 24. You can't, you can't trap Jesus. They'll learn that. He answered them, verse 24, I also will ask you a question. And if you tell me the answer to my question, then, then I will tell you the answer to your question. Now, Jesus isn't avoiding the question here. He's not trying to buy some time. It's not what's going on. He, he's simply following what would have been a common rabbinic practice by answering a question with another question. 
And that, that, that's how there's dialogue happened between rabbis. In fact, Jesus says, well, if you answer the question I'm going to ask you, then I'll answer your question. So he promises to answer the question, but, but first he issues a question of his own. But he says this because Jesus knows that the very question that he asks contains the answer to their question. We'll see that in a second. In other words, to answer his question, if they answer it, then they will have an answer to their own question as well. So, so it's a very intentional question from Jesus. So look at what he asked. The question he asked, verse 25. The baptism of John, where did it come from? That's his question. John the Baptist, he, he, he practiced a baptism. Where did it come from, religious leaders? Did it come from heaven or from man? Those are the two options that Jesus lays out. Either it was from man, that John made it up, or, or some other man made it up, or it was from heaven. God himself sent John. Those are the two options that Jesus gives them. Now, we've been through Matthew's gospel. We know where John's baptism came from. All the way back in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist was introduced by Matthew as the voice calling out in the wilderness, the, the one sent by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. John was sent by God to prepare the way for the greater one, the promised Messiah. And so we know that, that although John was beheaded, he was killed back in, that was recorded in Matthew 14, the reality is that, that John lived and died having served his purpose as the last and greatest prophet of the old covenant. He was sent from God with a baptism that was from God that prepared the way for the salvation of the Messiah. That was John's role, and we know that. And everyone who has followed Jesus into the temple, who's followed him from Galilee down all the way to Bethany and into Jerusalem, all of his followers, they know that. And they believe that about John, that he was sent by God to prepare the way. But these opponents don't believe that at all. They, they couldn't care less about the mission of John or Jesus. Which is why, knowing that, knowing their perspective on John, Jesus asked this question because this question forces them to deal with John's authority. He asked them a question that would force them to either deny John's legitimate authority and therefore confirm their denial of Jesus and his legitimate authority. And that, that's his point. They, they can say, well, it's just from man or it was from God. And if they affirm it was from God, then they have to therefore affirm by what authority Jesus is acting because John and Jesus are connected. But let's keep going. Verse 25 continues. He asks the simple question, what's the source of John's baptism? Verse 25 continues, and they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. Now, one thing to notice here, did you notice what was absent in their discussion? Did you notice what they didn't seem to be concerned with? They didn't ask, well, what's true? Where is John's baptism from? They don't care about the truth in their discussion among themselves. Their primary concern is, is, is damage control or the potential results. They don't consider, well, what's true? Maybe we should, maybe we should ask ourselves, what, what did John say? What were the signs accompanying John and, and his ministry? They don't care about the truth. Instead, all they care about is the potential aftermath of both answers. And it's obvious if the answer that his baptism was from heaven, then Jesus would simply say, well, then why didn't you go out and be baptized by him? Why didn't you believe him? For, for them to acknowledge that John had in fact been sent by God would be to admit that they refused to believe God's messenger. Something that's obviously true to us, but not something these people are willing to publicly admit to. So, so they can't say it's from heaven, but then they say, well, if we say it's from men, there's a lot of people here in Jerusalem 
And, and there's a lot of these people who have following Jesus who started following Jesus by following John. And if we say it was just from man, well, well then all these people are going to be really upset at us because we're going to de- deny their baptism, their experience. In fact, everyone recognized that John was a prophet. By and large, the, the crowds in Jerusalem, they went out to John back in Matthew chapter 3 this is what Matthew says, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to John and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. There's a large group of people that, that hear and respond to John because if you remember that there was a long period of silence, there were no prophets in Israel. And here we have John stepping on the scene, breaking the silence and people run out to him and they listen to him. And they heed his advice. And so they couldn't say that it was a man, that he was sent from man because that was clearly not what the people believed. And so these religious leaders conclude that there's no good answer. So they say, we don't know. We don't know. To which Jesus says, well, then I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things. I told you if you answer my question, I'll answer yours. Well, you're not going to answer mine. So I'm not going to answer yours. That, that's how Jesus responds. Because of their refusal Jesus also refuses. Though we see Jesus asked the question he did because he was so closely identified with John in his ministry because the sole purpose of John was to point to Jesus. He asked the question because if the religious leaders would have acknowledged the fact that John had been sent by God, then their perspective on Jesus would have been different. They wouldn't ask by what authority because if they recognized John, they would recognize Jesus. To acknowledge that God had sent John would necessarily lead to acknowledging that God had sent Jesus. What you believe about John determined what you believed about Jesus. The same authority that was behind John was, in fact, behind Jesus. Yes, Jesus is greater than John, but both were, submits, were sent and commissioned with authority from heaven. And in both cases, these leaders failed to acknowledge that. And I think one thing that we can just stop in a way to apply this first section is to recognize the issue of authority. By what authority? That's the question the religious leaders ask. And, and one thing they recognized is that authority plays an essential role in the actions taken by Jesus. They knew that actions are either legitimate or illegitimate depending upon the authority from which the actions proceed. Authority is the issue. And as we've been going through Matthew's gospel, we continue to see the legitimate authority of the Son of God. The authority by which he teaches and heals and confronts. The authority by which he he ministers. It's an authority with no legitimate rival or contender. And it's good for us to simply recognize this fact. Jesus has all authority. There's no rival. So when Jesus speaks, we listen. It's easy for us, maybe it's not you, it's easy for me to see these religious leaders who refuse Jesus, who refuse to listen to him and say, well, look how bad they are. What, what fools. It's easy for me to say that, but can the same not be said about us as followers of Christ? Dear Christian, are you able to say with full confidence that, that you hear and respond to the clear teachings and commands of Jesus with unceasing, unquestioned obedience day after day? Are you willing to say that? Is your conscience clean that, that you hear the authority of your Savior and you follow without issue? Of course, we recognize the authority of Jesus, but do our lives consistently reflect that? I mean, just a few, love your enemies. 
That's a command from our Savior. How are you doing? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you if you have children. You probably say that daily. But how are you doing with that? Are you treating others the way that you would have them treat you? Boys and girls, Jesus commands you to obey your parents. That's not them. That authority doesn't doesn't begin with them. That is from the Lord himself. What about deny yourself? Deny yourself daily. Take up your cross and follow me. How are we doing with that? That, That's that's a command from Jesus with full authority. Are, Are we submitting to him? Make disciples. As we, as we see the folly of these religious leaders, we must not miss our own sinful tendencies. As those who have decided to follow Jesus, we know that, we have, that he has all authority. We know that he was sent by the Father. We know that his commandments are, are not burdensome, but light, therefore are good. Yet, we're so often prone to live our lives under some other lesser authority. And so let us learn. Let us learn and let us, let us labor to submit to the authority of Christ and plead with him to help us, and and when we fail, to repent and turn afresh to him and and renew our obedience. These opponents rejected the authority of Jesus, and they lived in light of that rejection. May we, as followers, labor to embrace and submit to the authority of Christ in our lives, even when it's difficult. That leads to the second section here, verses 28 through 32. Not only do we see the authority of Jesus rejected, we also see the will of the Father rejected. Second section. So he, he's interacted with the chief priests and the elders, and, and at least for the moment, he sufficiently silenced them. He, he now is going to proceed to tell a few parables. And, and all the parables, there's going to be three that follows. We're looking at the first two today, and, and Lord willing, the third will be next week. But all of these parables center on what was just implicit in the section we looked at, verses 23 through 27. Namely, the unbelief of these leaders in their rejection of Jesus. That's going to be the focus of all these parables. So it just happened. Now he's going to tell three parables to illustrate the state of these religious leaders. And this first parable, verses 28 through 32, it's going to make clear that to reject Jesus, as they've clearly shown to do, is to reject the will of God the Father which is significant for these religious leaders because they were claiming to honor God himself. And and Jesus is showing them through this parable that they are not doing the will of the Father. So look there at verse 28. What do you think, he asked them. He he wants them to, to hear this story and issue a judgment. That's how his parables work. You hear the story and you issue a judgment. And they get it right, both of these that we'll look at. But they they, they declare the judgment, and then he's going to tell them the the meaning behind it. So so look, what do you think? He's still talking to his religious leaders. We know that because of what happens later. But verse 28, he's going to ask them a question. A man had two sons. Here's a simple scenario. A man has two sons. There's son number one and son number two. And in this parable, this father gives the sons, son number one and son number two, the exact same task. He says, go out today and work in the vineyard. This would have been a clearly a family-owned vineyard. The, the children would have been expected to help care. It was a family business. And so he says to son one and son two, go work in the vineyard. Would have been an abnormal expectation for a father. And so son number one, he says, go. Son number two, he says, go. Same task, 
but not the same response, right? First, these initial responses of son one and son two, son two could not have been more different. The first son hears what his father says, and he responds by saying, no way, never, I'm not doing that. Whereas the second son hears the call of the father, and he says, yes, sir, right away, I'm on it. Your wish is my command, yes, sir. Right? So, so these initial responses are, are vastly different, are they not? And so as, as Jesus is telling this story, that, that's how the scene is set up. And while it may not be as shocking today, everyone listening to this story, the religious leaders especially, would have been shocked at the response of son one. In that day, for a son to speak to his father in such a way and, and to refuse to obey to his face would have been shocking, unbelievable almost. For a father to tell his son to do something, the son to say, never, Right, that happens, that happens in, in my house often, right? But in that day, that, w- that was not, in, f- in fact, think about the Old Testament law with disobedient children. Do you know what happened to disobedient children on the Old Covenant? They were stoned to death. Boys and girls, you think your parents are harsh? Read the Old Covenant, right? So, so the son refuses directly to his father's face, I'm not doing it. But, and the second son says, yes, I will, which is what they would have expected the, the good son to do. But, but the initial responses are not how things ended. So son number one, yes, he blatantly disobeyed his father at the first, but notice what happened afterwards. Afterwards, Jesus says, he changed his mind and he went. So, so afterwards, son number one says, I'm not doing it, but then he changed his mind and he did what the father asked. And so at the end of the day, son number one obeyed. He did what he was asked. Though he had a rough start, at the end of the day, he fulfilled his father's will. The same cannot be said for son number two. Son number two, though he told his father he would obey, though he paid lip service to the will of his father, at the end of the day, that's all it was. It was only lip service. He said, I go, but he did not go. So son number two did not fulfill his father's will. He said that he would, but he lied. His words were empty. His obedience was was incomplete. And in this case, to to incompletely obey was to disobey completely. And so not surprisingly, the listeners understand the point of the parable. So Jesus tells this story and he says, which one of these two sons did the will of the father? And they say the first. They know it was the first son because he did obey, which then sets the stage. They, They judge rightly. And that sets a stage for Jesus to make his point. Notice how he continues. Truly I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Now, if if you thought the parable was shocking with the disobedient son, this is even more so shocking. Because Jesus here identifies the leaders as son number two. And the one who did the will of the Father, he identifies as the despised tax collectors and prostitutes. And so Jesus says, you religious leaders, you are like the second son. You pay lip service to God, but you don't do what he says. And while that's true of you, the worst of the worst, the the downtrodden, the outcast, the plagued in your eyes, the despised tax collectors and prostitutes, they are going to enter the kingdom of heaven ahead of you because they have obeyed. And that's the implicit point of the parable, right? These sinners, 
They had turned against God for much of their lives, but, but now, in the coming of Jesus, they had turned back, and they'd come to God by coming to Jesus, while these religious officials, in, in, in their endeavor to, to lead this religious life, they'd said, we're going to agree to do God's will, but now that Jesus had come, they were found disregarding and rejecting the very will of God, which was to come to the Son. The obvious turning point in both cases is how you respond to Jesus, Jesus is the one who was sent by the Father to establish the kingdom. Thus, to enter the kingdom was to respond to the message of Jesus, to respond to the king. And his ministry throughout this gospel has been filled with tax collectors and prostitutes and blind men and diseased women and poor and neglected and outcasts being received into the kingdom because of the merciful king who calls all people to come to him. And so the point that Jesus is making to these religious leaders is that it doesn't really matter what you say. The most important thing that anyone can do is what you decide about Jesus. It all hinges upon what you think about and how you respond to Jesus. That's why in verse 32, he, he brings up this issue of John. He says, look, they, they, resp- they changed their mind and they, they responded to John. Now they're responding to me, but, but you didn't respond to John. And even when you've seen what has happened and now you've seen me, you're not responding. You haven't changed your mind. And so they are outside of the kingdom. This parable is a clear indictment of the religious leaders in their rejection of Jesus. They were guilty of rejecting the will of the Father, which I think we, again, can take a point of application here to to learn from the folly of these religious leaders. And, And I think the point we learn is that talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. It's easy. It's easy to pay lip service. That the folly of these religious leaders continues to shine forth. And I think we ought to be careful not to pharisaically dismiss the folly of these religious leaders as something we can never struggle with. But what we see with these religious leaders, the temple has become a safe place for the unrighteous. The unrighteous who thought that just because they were in the temple, just because they showed up and did the right things, said the right things, looked the part, just because of that, they thought they were safe. And here again, we see the second son saying the right thing, but there's no substance to the second son. There's no substance to what he's saying. We see religious people who love the idea of being religious without actually having any substance underneath the surface. And we should beware of that. I mean, it's one thing to say, I love Jesus. It's, it's one thing to say, I'm following him. And, and to post Bible verses or to communicate on social media that that I'm a Christian. It's easy to do that, and it's one thing to do that, but it's another thing altogether to actually love Jesus and follow him. I was reminded of the character Talkative from from the book Pilgrim's Progress. Have you you read that book? If you haven't, you should put it on your list and, and start this afternoon. It's a wonderful Christian classic written by John Bunyan. But, but in this, this, this story, it's, it's an allegory of the Christian life. The main character is Christian. He's on his way to the celestial city. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful story. But, but in this story, Christian and his, his friend, Faithful, they encounter a character named Talkative. And, and this man, Talkative, could talk about religion. In fact, he loved talking about religion. And he could say all the right things and he could fool everyone. In fact, faithful was fooled by talkative because talkative said, oh, here, here's all that was, must be done in the Christian life. Here's what the Christian life looks like. Let's talk about things of religion. But, 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 but 
Christian knows Talkative from his former, from where he used to live. And he knows his reputation. So he pulls Faithful aside and says, he's, he's not what you think. His reputation precedes him. He'll talk and wherever he is, that, that's where his talk transforms to. And, and if, if, he's, if he's at the, the, the tavern, he'll talk tavern talk. And the more he drinks, the worse his language gets is actually what, what he's told. But, but the point, what Christian says is, is he can fool a lot of people. But those who know him best, his family know what's true about him. That's what he says. So, so, so from afar, he can fool people. He's always going. And, and so the way that they get rid of talkative, because, because talkative is like, well, I believe you because you know him. Well, what are we going to do? He says, here's all you got to do. You just got to ask him a question about the power of true, relig- true religion. And ask him about how his life is changed by what he believes. And of course, Faithful goes back and starts asking about the power of true religion. And, and if true religion was being worked out in his relationships and his conversation in his life, and, and Talkative doesn't want to talk about doing. All he wants to talk about is talking. And so he gets offended. He says, you're judging me. How dare you judge me? And he leaves. Because see, he didn't want to talk about the depths of, of how true religion showed itself in doing. All he wanted to do was talk. And I think talkative is the epitome of these religious leaders. It's one thing to talk the talk, to know what to say, and you can probably fool a lot of people, but true religion is seen in doing. And we're called to be whole people. Yes, we're called to talk, but our lives are called to match. And we see the tax collectors and prostitutes entering the kingdom ahead of the talkers because they had come to Jesus. They'd obeyed the Father. And so I think we ought to learn from talkative and the empty words of these religious leaders. Well, this leads lastly to our final section, which is a long section, but, but it's, it's a straightforward parable. And the, the point is very clear. And so, so the meaning of this final section is in line with all that's come before. It's, it's this, this opposition. And so he tells this parable about a master of the house who plants a vineyard and, and he sets it up, then he leaves, which would have been common. And he leases out his property, his, his vineyard to tenants, to those who are going to take care and make sure that, that it's producing fruit. And when it, when it produces fruit, the man, the owner would, would send his servants to get the fruit to take back because it's the man's. And he'd certainly share the share with the tenants, but he, it was his fruit that he would take back. Well, what happens is this, this owner sends the first group of servants and they're all killed. And he sends a second group of more people and they're all killed. And then this, what we would say is a foolish landowner sends his son and says, well, surely they'll respect my son. And we see they, they say, actually, this is the son. Let's kill him and we'll get everything. So that's what they do. It's a clear issue. It's, it's a clear moral judgment that, that's issued after this. What's going to happen? And, and the listeners to Jesus, they are indignant at what's happened to the son. And so Jesus says, hey, what's going to happen when the owner comes back? And they say, he's going to put those wretches to a miserable death. Right? He's going to judge them severely because of what they've done. That's, that's their judgment. And they, they're judging rightly. Why would, he, why would he not do otherwise and give the vineyard to other tenants who will help him receive the fruits. And so they say they're, they're angry. They say he's going to kill them, not realizing that the judgment they're pronouncing is upon their own heads. Because recognizing what's going on in Jerusalem, understanding Jesus has come to Jerusalem for the explicit purpose of being killed by these religious leaders, there's no doubt who the characters in this parable represent. 
So, so these leaders in the nation of Israel have rejected and killed prophet after prophet. That's part of their reputation, their past. But now, standing before them in their very midst, they have the only begotten son sent by the father to save them. And they don't know it yet, but they're going to kill him. They're going to crucify him on a cross by the end of the week. And with that rapidly approaching reality, the judgment pronounced by these religious leaders serves as the sentence that will be rendered upon these leaders in the nation of Israel. They're going to reject the very Son of God. Those he came to save, he was not received by his own, but was murdered by them. And so these religious leaders will be judged for the great evil of not only leading God's people astray, but also for killing the very Messiah that had been sent to save them. But the parable doesn't just convey the reality of judgment that these leaders will face. It also conveys God's future plan for his vineyard, doesn't it? He's not going to leave the vineyard in the possession of unfaithful evil tenants. Instead, as the religious leaders rightly judge, in light of the mistreatment of these original tenants, the vineyard owner will let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give, give him the fruits in their seasons. And so these original tenants didn't produce the fruit that they were commissioned to produce. Thus, there were going to be new tenants, which connects with what we saw last week with the barren fig tree. Remember, the fig tree was cursed because it was barren. It had leaves, it had the appearance of fruitfulness, but but as Jesus approached, it was barren. It was empty, there was no fruit. And that's exactly the state of things in Israel among these religious leaders. And so Jesus says, verse 42, have you never read? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruits. And so, so that's the point. You, you had a privileged position, and you have scorned the very one who was sent to save you. And what Jesus is doing, we're not, going to go, not to go into, we're not going to go into detail here, but Psalm 118 is what he's quoting here, which is a messianic psalm. And so this would have been known as a messianic prediction. And Jesus quotes Psalm 118 to show them that the psalm itself points to him as its fulfillment. And so Psalm 118 is quoted as evidence to validate the teaching of this parable. And so he is going to be rejected by them. They're going to kill the son. And it's going to be them, but the rejected son is going to be the cornerstone of the new temple. The rejected cornerstone is going to be the new temple. There's a great reversal. That's the point. The the cornerstone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the foundation stone of this new temple. Jesus is teaching that the coming change the, the, the ending of the temple, the fading of the temple. With the coming of Jesus, there's a transformation, a fulfillment, a, a transformation of Judaism as it was known. Jesus came as the new temple. And upon his work, his life, death, and resurrection, a new people, a new temple would be built. That's the point of Psalm 118. The rejected cornerstone, the crucified Savior, was going to be the foundation stone of the people of God. And so the rejection and the murder of the beloved son would not be a tragic end, but it would be the Lord's doing. It would be majestic in our eyes or marvelous in our eyes, which brings the conversation all the way back to the beginning. Jesus is the the king with authority. He was sent by the Lord 
He was the one to be heard and listened to, the one with real authority. And this is the one that they are going to kill, the beloved son who's going to be murdered, but whose death is going to be the start, the foundation stone of a new people. And these people are going to be destroyed, no longer to be over the vineyard. They're going to lose the privileged place. And the response, verse 45, the chief priests and, parable and Pharisees heard what he's saying. They, they understand he's talking about them. And though they want to arrest him, they feared the crowds. Again, what's on display throughout this whole is, is the Pharisees are afraid of the crowds. They don't care about, they're not, there's no fear of God before their eyes, but they're afraid of the crowds. And so they're, not, they're set on killing him. They're prevented from acting because of their fear of the people, which sets the stage for the third final parable, which will illustrate the final destruction of these leaders. And so the final point of application would simply be, well, a sub-point, the patience of God. Do we see the patience here of the Lord in sending prophet after prophet and the son to be rejected? We see the patience of God over and over, knowing his son would be murdered and crucified. The Lord is patient. But the main application, final point here, is the centrality of Jesus. He is the cornerstone. He is the foundation, which confirms what we saw last week with what Jesus did in the temple. He is the temple. There, the, the old temple, the one in Jerusalem, it was on its way out. In fact, as we mentioned last week, in 70 AD, it was going to be totally destroyed. It was out of practice. It was, it was fading in significance. Its, its purpose was to point to the true temple, which had come in the person of Jesus. And Jesus is the foundation piece, the principal stone. Without Jesus, there's no building. The people of God are built upon Jesus Christ. This is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. Jesus has joined all people. He is the unifying factor. He is the building block of his people. And it's one temple built upon Jesus Christ. So now Jews and Gentiles are fellow citizens, members of the household of God, of the temple built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple to the Lord. And so it should go without saying that when Jesus ceases to be the main idea, where Jesus ceases to be the central theme, where Jesus ceases to be the sun around which everything else in the church orbits, when that happens, when Jesus does not hold the central place in a church, that church ceases to be a church. There's no church without Christ as its foundation. There's no church without Jesus. This, this should influence how we think about the church. When a church loses the gospel, it is no longer a church. May Christ and his gospel be the foundation of the church that gathers at, Fox, at 335 Fox Hill Road until Jesus comes back. If we lose the gospel, we lose our standing as a church. What are we built upon if not Jesus Christ? So if me or anyone else ever stands from this pulpit and preaches something other than Christ as the cornerstone, remove us. Because when he ceased to be preached from here, a church is on its way to the cemetery. May that never be the case for Fox Hill Road Baptist Church. 
May we always be built upon the good news of the gospel that although Jesus was the beloved son, and although Jesus, uh, of all people, deserved to be heard and received and accepted, he was not. He was rejected. And that tension, the tension between his authority and his rejection speaks to the character of Jesus. And points us to the good news of his gospel. And specifically points us to the gospel because we are like the wicked tenants, friends. We are the ones who colluded against our Lord, against our landowner, rejecting him, refusing to obey. And though he had every right to destroy us, he sent his beloved son. And he sent that beloved son while we were still sinners. And that's the good news. The beloved son was rejected and killed. And because of that, we are welcomed in. And we actually receive the inheritance. You get that? Because the son is killed, we receive the inheritance because of what he's done for us. It's not because we deserve it, but it's because God is patient with us and gracious. Let's, let's pray as we close and then we'll sing in response.